Thank you, and, and Secretary Summers and guests, uh, welcome to the first ACCF webinar on the COVID economy. May I first say our thoughts are with all of you at this very difficult time, and special thanks to the many selfless Americans, physicians, nurses, policemen and firemen, and just ordinary Americans who are giving so much to our fellow citizens. Professor Summers, welcome back to the ACCF. I will always be grateful that more than a quarter of a century ago, when you were the youngest tenured professor at Harvard, you generously served on the board of the ACCF Center for Policy Research. You became the 71st Secretary of Treasury and served as the 27th President of Harvard. Um, welcome, and as you and I discussed, um, I've got some questions that I shared with you, and why don't we go right to them? Sounds good, Mark. First, what are the major differences between today's crisis and the Asian financial crisis, which you handled so well, and the 2007 and 8 recession? Now, before you get a chance to answer it, I'm reminded of the February 1999 cover of Time magazine, which I think you remember, which said the Committee to Save the World, Reuben, Summers, and Greenspan. What are your thoughts about saving the world today? Let me just first say, Mark, uh, that I started working with the ACCF nearly 40 years ago, and that I've got great admiration for the things that uh, Charlie Walker and you did together, and the things you have done uh, carrying on the work of the ACCF uh, since Charlie passed. Um, this is a uh, more difficult and solemn moment than most of the moments uh, that we have been together. You asked about the difference between the Asian crisis, the 2008 uh, crisis, and the current one. I think the biggest difference by far is that those crises were generated from within the financial system. And they then had cascading consequences from the financial system for uh, the rest of the economy. And that there was a sense that when there was damage done to the financial system and by the financial system, it would take a substantial amount of time to repair. Those were fundamentally crises of demand. It wasn't that the capacity of the economy to produce in Korea was any lower in 1999 than it had been in 1997. It was that because of the breakdowns of the financial system, people couldn't get credit and uh, the like, the economy fell short of its potential. Today, the driving event is biological. It is the spread of uh, the virus it is the knowledge of its contagion, and it is the fact that public authorities have deemed correctly, in my view, that at present it is uh, highly problematic for most of us, certainly for those like me who are over 60, to um, be out in public interacting in normal ways with other people that as a rough estimate, um, about 30% of us can work from home. 
and about 30% of uh, us Americans have jobs that need doing even in the current circumstance. We draw blood from people, we work as grocery uh, workers, we man, we man the mass transit uh, uh, systems, we're delivery workers. Um, 30% of people have jobs that need to get done uh, now, 30% of people work at home, and about 40% of people are in neither of those two categories, and therefore they're not able to produce. And as a consequence, what our economy can produce is way down. This is not an issue of stimulus. We don't want people going to concerts or going to or browsing in uh, bookstores. So the policy problem is of managing the health side of it so we get through all of this and can have some normality, providing relief to people so they can continue to subsist and exist in decent ways in uh, the interim uh, period, and preserving the capacity so that when it's possible for the economy uh, to resume, it resumes in a good and effective way. You know, I think of two different kinds of resumption from economic contraction. One is the kind that takes place every year where I'm sitting. I'm sitting in Truro, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. The GDP of Truro, Massachusetts falls by perhaps 60% every October and stays depressed and then starts to rise again in May and booms in June, July, and August, and then the cycle repeats itself. That's a successful recovery from an economy that's in the complete doldrums. On the other hand, it took many years for us to get from 2009 back to where we had been in terms of employment and GDP. And what we want to do is manage the economy, manage support for firms in ways that will enable us to have a recover, have an expansion when health conditions permit more like Truro's and less like um, the less like uh, the one that occurred after uh, the financial uh, crisis. So they're really quite different situations, um, non-financial source versus financial source, uh, supply side centrality versus uh, demand side uh, centrality. I should say that I think the odds are pretty high that at least in a short run sense, this will be the more serious of uh, the crises. I would be su very surprised if unemployment and GDP decline in this crisis from previous peak to recession trough isn't more severe than we saw in 2008. Though my hope would be 
for uh, a more rapid return uh, and more rapid, more rapid resumption of potential. Well, thank you. Thank you. That, that um, laid out uh, the differences between the crises. The second question, what do you like or dislike about the CARES Act and earlier fiscal and monetary measures. Now, for those who don't know where uh, Larry Summers comes out, my research, I found a 1998 New Yorker profile where Professor Summers said, I describe myself as a market-oriented progressive. That might be a framework for you to talk about what you like and dislike about what we've done so far. I think what I like is that we did it fast and that we did it big and that we did it on a number of uh, different dimensions. So if you compare this with uh, what happened in 2008, or even if you compare it with what happened during the Asian financial crisis, these are big commitments made uh, very uh, made very quickly. What I worry about is whether we're going to be able to execute and implement on those commitments in an effective uh, way. Doesn't do people that much good to be promised money if they don't actually have uh, the money. There's small businesses facing liquidity problems who need to get that uh, extra liquidity as, uh, quick, as quickly um, as they can. And it's inevitable that um, ramping up in this way is uh, going to um, be something that's going to be uh, difficult and challenging. And frankly, um, it's made worse by the fact that if, for example, you take um, the roster of senior officials in the Treasury Department, you know, when I walked into the Treasury Department each day, there were there was a a place you passed where there were, I would guess, eighteen pictures of the major officials in the department, most of whom were Senate confirmed. At the average moment when I was working in the Treasury Department in the 1990s, I would say of those 18 people, 16 were filled by permanent holders of the position, and two were filled by acting officials. I would guess today, that um, five of them are filled um, by people who hold the position and 13 of them are filled uh, by acting officials. Now you can debate whether that's the fault of the Senate confirmation process or the White House appointments process or the way in which this administration is being run. There are elements of truth in all of those. But I think we need to recognize that our government is very thin 
um, in terms of implementation uh, capacity, even as it um, deals with uh, this Herculean uh, challenge. So I would say those are the things that are more on the negative side. I think there's one major error of omission um, in uh, the CARES Act, which is this event, these events are going to crush the budgets of state and local governments. Collapsing GDP is going to uh, crush their revenue base with a balanced budget amendment. That's going to mean that they're slashing spending. And if you think about what state and local governments uh, do, they run, municip- they run municipal hospitals, they perform, emer- they perform um, emergency uh, functions. This is probably a time when we need more of those outlays, not a time when we need less uh, outlays. I hear all of this discussion, which I support, about our need for increases in public capital, our need for increases in uh, infrastructure. Well, let's start by not slashing infrastructure investments. And the danger is that given what's happening to state and local budgets, you're gonna see all kinds of infrastructure investments get slashed. Well, um, thank you a second time. Now, let's, not assume that there's a committee uh, to save uh, the world, but there is just one person there to save the world. And that is you, not as Secretary of Treasury, or but better yet, as an absolute monarch. What would you do to stabilize and strengthen the economy? And I might add for those who do not know Larry Summers, two things. Number one is what Bob Rubin, the former Secretary of Treasury, said, and quite frankly, one of the most highly regarded financiers, a businessman, said, he said, about Larry Summers, the most extraordinary intellect I've ever worked with. Now, having said this for you practical people, because you can't only be smart, you got to be able to get things done. I bet nobody here knows that Larry Summers' confirmation vote to be Secretary of the Treasury was 97 to two. So you have both abilities as an absolute monarch to get us back on track. Your thoughts, what would you do? Given the daunting nature of the problem, I would seriously consider um, abdication. But if abdication was um, not an option, open uh, to me, I would focus first on getting the health apparatus and infrastructure set. I read this morning that uh, Egypt successfully um, tested essentially all of its citizens for a range of diseases in a relatively short time for less than a dollar a person. If Egypt can figure out how to do that, I don't understand why the United States can't figure out how to be in a regime where we're doing 10 million tests a day um, so that we are one, so each of us is getting tested once a month and 
we are right on top of any place where there is any kind of outbreak. So my first focus would be on spending all the money that the problem could absorb on uh, basic testing, contact uh, tracing, and treating uh, victims with respect to uh, the pandemic. This is a case where health policy is economic policy. And I think if we did that, we would very substantially improve our options uh, for doing everything uh, else. Second thing uh, that uh, I would emphasize is making sure that we had as strong a flow of credit as uh, possible. I would urge that the Federal Reserve reach a new, and the banking regulators reach a new compact with the banking system in which it was understood that until this problem was behind us, banks were not going to buy back their shares or pay their scarce funds out in dividends. But at the same time, regulators were going to recognize that there was a reason we had built up capital, and that was to use it in a time of stress, and that this was a time of stress. And so regulators across a variety of dimensions would forbear and uh, permit the depletion of capital and, per and permit the extension of loans um, without uh, substantial, uh, substantial penalty. And so I would do everything I could to maintain a flow of credit because after all, what this is, is a transient, very difficult moment. And that's what uh, credit is for. Third, I would look at our various fiscal programs and I would use the phrase that Mario Draghi used extremely successfully some time ago uh, in Europe, whatever it takes. And I would say we are going to spend what it takes to support all Americans through uh, this uh, challenge and we're going to engage in the spending for as long as we need to uh, to uh, meet uh, this uh, challenge. And fourth, I would borrow a phrase uh, that was used by the Supreme Court in a very different context um, 70 years ago, all deliberate speed. And I would make clear that we were going to reopen the economy as fast as we could, maintaining an extremely high level of confidence that we were not going to have to close it back up on a comprehensive scale again. And that would mean avoiding any confidence setting of dates as to when certain stages of reopening were going to happen, because that was going to depend on the data. But I would also make clear that uh, the decisions were going to be made with the recognition 
that the president is right, that Americans are not meant to live closed. They're not meant to live unable to leave their houses, but that if you let up on this too quickly and with an insufficient revised system of tracking in place, what you're going to do is create a situation where you're going to have to go to lockdown again, and you're going to end up with more total weeks, not less total weeks of uh, lockdown. So all deliberate speed, but not all speed on opening up uh, the economy. Fiscal policies that support the incomes of Americans from a relief perspective all the way uh, through financial policies that maximize the availability and uh, flow of uh, credit and a massive um, initiative around the new health infrastructure. Those would be the four pillars of the program. Thank you. And you and I have been involved in the legislative process, although I don't know anybody, certainly not me, who can get 97 to 2. So by unanimous consent, you are cannot resign as the absolute monarch. Now, let's open it up to questions and answers. And the first one is, is interesting. The first one is from Ambassador Jim Jones, who you may remember. Um, when he was in Congress, and more importantly, uh, one of the folks that we should applaud for having been an architect of NAFTA. And Jim Jones, who's on the line, asks, please suggest what our economic policies should be after the first and second rounds of the virus are over and a vaccine cure are approved, and we're left with a new debt of perhaps 100% of GDP and need new resources to recharge our economy. Of course, you answered part of the question, but Jim, I would like to remind you that Secretary Summers is the only Secretary of Treasury in recent memory who left office with a national budget surplus. So what do you say to Jimmy Jones? Jim, good to, uh, good to hear from you. Uh, you were absolutely invaluable to uh, the President uh, Clinton during another crisis we haven't referred to yet, the Mexican financial crisis of uh, 1995, and your presence in Mexico City as the uh, ambassador of the United States to Mexico was absolutely crucial in maintaining trust uh, between our two uh, countries. And I would also say that at moments like this, uh, leadership in the White House is uh, essential. And I am old enough to remember when, as a very young man, you provided crucial service as President Johnson's uh, chief of uh, staff. First thing I'd say, Jim, is I wish your question were right. Um, I think it would be very surprising if the debt to GDP ratio of the United States in 2025 was not 
significantly in excess of 100% of GDP. That's the bad news. The good news, which I think is fairly important, is that for a whole set of structural reasons, I think interest rates are going to be abnormally low for a long time to come. And so while we're going to have a relatively high debt ratio, we're going to have a relatively low debt service ratio. And if you think about advising a young family on how big a house they can afford, you would pay attention to the size of their mortgage relative to their income, but you would pay at least an equal amount of attention to their monthly payment relative to their income. And something of the same kind is true with respect to uh, the federal uh, government. I think we're, we're going to need over time to find a way in the United States to raise more total uh, revenue than the federal government now raises. I don't see how you can run a great nation on 17% of GDP in tax revenue or close to 17% of GDP in tax revenue. I believe that the priority, certainly the quite urgent priority right now, in terms of anything on the tax side, should be measures that would make the tax code more progressive. And I think there's, there are strong cases for a variety of measures that would make it more progressive. I've published a paper recently that argues that you could raise nearly $100 billion a year um, without essentially all from people in the top 1% or 2% of the income distribution in corporations just by doing a better job of collecting taxes that are owed uh, but not paid. The um, former commissioner of the IRS, I think probably the best commissioner we've had in a very long time because he knew about running a big bureaucracy based on information technology, uh, Charlie Rosati has done a fairly careful and comprehensive study that argues that the right number is more like $2 trillion over a decade, so almost twice as large as my estimate. There are a variety of other places to go. Ultimately, though, I think it's probably not the case that we're going to succeed in um, doing everything we need to do as a nation financed just from the top 1% of the population, urgent as progressivity is, and we're going to need to find ways of having broader-based taxes. Perhaps those will be environmentally oriented taxes like uh, carbon taxes. Perhaps at some point, uh, though it doesn't look like it's anywhere near the horizon now, the value-added tax will uh, return uh, to the discussion. But I think after all the years we've had of cutting civilian government and with the reality of a substantially more aged population, and with the reality that life expectancy for the lower half of the American population in terms of income has basically not increased 
in quite some number of years, I think that we're going to have to do a large part of what needs to be done on uh, the uh, revenue side, though all initiatives to support containing healthcare costs I'm in favor of, I rather suspect that uh, the events we're in the middle of probably point more towards increases in healthcare costs over time than cuts in healthcare costs over time. Uh, Larry, thank you. And um, I uh, want to also thank you for your um, comments at the discussion of a wealth tax uh, at PPI with, with Greg Mankiw and others. The thing that I would like to suggest, um, because you were kind of participate in several of our forums at the ACCF, that we do for our tax reform what Alexander Hamilton suggested. And I don't have the Federalist paper right here, but Alexander Hamilton came out for a consumption tax many years ago. And I think perhaps you and I can come up with an American consumption tax, which might be better suited for our country than others. I'm concerned about the generosity of your time, so let's do one more question. And okay. this one, as the Secretary of Treasury, you probably would not answer, but what the heck, it's by Jim uh, Oztek uh, of Taxes and Retirement Security, the American Council of Life Insurance. He asks, I would be interested in his expectations for near, mid, and long-term interest rates on 10-year treasuries as well as credit spreads for A-rated bonds. Um, the prediction that I would make with respect to both of those important variables is the prediction that J.P. Morgan made when he was asked a similar question. J.P. Morgan paused, reflected, leaned forward, and said that in his judgment, based on his decades in the capital market, it was his expectation that those prices in the weeks and months and years ahead would fluctuate. And um, I make that prediction with respect to both credit spreads and 10-year interest rates. In general, I think we're in a world where um, the propensity to save is going to be quite high. The propensity to invest is going to be quite low. We are going to be importing significant deflationary pressures. And so I would expect interest rates to remain for the foreseeable future at a very low uh, level. I think that it will be useful for people wanting to think about the economy going forward, to think about the economy of the 1950s and early 60s, when we had a legacy of substantial debt, when there was much more emphasis in macroeconomic policy on fiscal policy than on monetary policy, and when we had interest rates that were relatively uh, low. Professor Summers, uh, this may be a surprise for you, but both you and I studied economics under the same 
professor. Did you know that? I did. Professor Anita. I think Sumner. I probably had a closer relationship with the professor than you did. Well, Professor Anita Summers, your mother, who tried to teach me introductory economics at Swarthmore College at the same time, and if I may quote, because I was never a graduate student of yours, like Viterbo and others, but I tried to do my homework. So I have a quote here from you in the Harvard Magazine. I studied along with my mother introductory economics at Swarthmore College. Professor Larry Summers, I'm still completely baffled and don't understand the dismal science, AK economics. I've tried to learn from your mother from your days at Harvard to the present. Maybe one of these days I'll get it right, but I regularly read your FT columns and all your other commentaries, and I thank you. I encourage our guests to do so, and thank you, Professor Summers Forever, my favorite professor of economics. And thank you, our guests, and please know this webinar will be recorded and will soon be on our website. Thank you, Larry. You've got so many demands in your time, and this really meant a lot to me. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.